Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, the author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. In the conversation, Karen and I discuss the connection between reading and virtue, what it means to be prudent, the perils of perfectionism, how to see love as a virtue, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do as well. Now, without further ado, please welcome the wise and gracious Karen Swallow Pryor. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, Karen. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to chat with you about your book on reading well, finding the good life through great books. Uh, but before we get into the book, would you mind sharing a little bit about your path, maybe what led you to, to get a PhD and embark on a, on a career in academia? Yeah, um, well, I became an English major in in undergrad. And um, it wasn't what I went to college for. I had I, I academia was not on my radar at all. I intended to be a, a social worker, and started out as a social work major, um, had always been a reader my entire life, but never knew until I got to college that you could actually take literature seriously and, and study it in a disciplined academic way. And so uh, when I was exposed um, to that kind of um, approach to literature, and also realized I would not make a good social worker, I switched my major. Um, but I still didn't know, you know, I don't come from an academic family. Most of my family hasn't even gone to college. So n none of this was on my radar. Um, and I got to the end of my undergrad program or close to the end and didn't really know what I wanted to do and lived near a large state university with a famous English program. And I decided to apply to its PhD program and I got in and didn't know what I was doing or <laughs> what I, what was in, in store for me. Uh, so it was really all quite serendipitous. I don't use this story as a way of advising students <laughs> um, or future academicians, um, but that's just how it worked out for me. And um, that is also, you know, while I was a graduate student uh, is when I decided to you know, try teaching as a graduate assistant. And that's when I discovered what I was created to do. I had always thought I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, and at, on teaching that first class that I knew that's what I was made to do. So <laughs> it was all very accidental. Here, here I am. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing some some background on that. A, a theme I think that has come up around that question um, for people that have taken the same path as you is a a professor maybe early on that that influenced and created that spark did you have any professors that that come to mind that maybe uh ignited some curiosity 
I absolutely did. As I said, I didn't start out in college expecting to be an English major. And all of my English, prof- I went to a very small private liberal arts college. Uh, so the English department was small and the professors were very personable. And um, one of them told me I should be an English major. And I, at that point, still wasn't convinced. Uh, and all of them just supported me throughout my program. Um and again, being a, a small department, I think, was part of that. I felt very much at home and very nurtured. And then when I got into my PhD program, this people will often ask how I chose the specialty I chose, which is 18th century British literature. Um, you know, it's sort of expanded a little bit since then, as, as it often does. But um, honestly, the answer to that question, when I was in the PhD program, and I was really overwhelmed, as, as most of us are, and I felt very unprepared and ill-equipped and and it was just it was just a difficult time i was also um a, you know developing as a strong um christian in an environment that was hostile to my faith and um there was one one professor uh who was who just went out of his way to reach out to me and take me to lunch and talk about my um you know my my academic career my plans uh my passions and he was you know the 18th century british literature professor so i don't think it's a coincidence that um i ended up um, specializing in the field of the professor who showed me the most kindness and um and looked out for me the most and showed an interest in me so mm-hmm. well i love that I guess transitioning into the book, I would love to hear you talk some about the the framework of, of the book and maybe what inspired that. Yeah, well, Unreading Well turned out to be a book that's as much about uh, classical virtues as it is about literature. And that is not a, at all how I thought the book would be. Um, my first book, which is published by a little um, independent literary publisher, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, is just a literary memoir about the books that that made me who I am, that most influenced my life. And so some years later, when I set out to write on Reading Well, I just really had the idea of writing another book about works of literature that I love and kind of the lessons that they showed me and can show us. Um, But my editor at Brazos, being a very good editor, um, knows me, he knows my influences, he knows my, my sort of my intellectual growth and my passions. And he suggested at the proposal phase of the of the project, that um, I put some something in even just like one sentence in the proposal, um, that that talked about literature as a habit and the practices that it develops. Because I've been highly, he knows that I've been highly influenced by James K.A. Smith, where he's he's actually um, his editor as well. Uh, And so this idea of, you know, of, of liturgy in everyday life, the way that we, you know, what we spend our days doing as, as as reading or whatever for me. Um, So it was just a a line my editor suggested I put in the proposal and I did and um, the proposal, you know, was accepted. So months later, at the end of the academic year, when I sat down to begin work uh, on the book during the summer, I saw that line and I I think I'd put something in about virtues. And, you know, I've I've been exposed to a lot of the vices through my study of literature. The vice, you know, medieval literature is filled with uh, personifications of the vices and they're so fun. And but I thought to myself, you know, I haven't really studied the virtues. So let me study the virtues (laughs) before I begin writing this book. And I fell in love with um, the 
classical philosophy around virtues, especially Aristotle, later Aquinas. And so I, when I sat down to write the book, I was really writing it in a way for me. I wanted to know what these virtues are, how they've been defined, and then how we see them embodied in in real life, but also in literature. Literature is a reflection of real life. And so at one point, I remember writing to my editor and saying, um, I hope you don't mind, but this book has turned out to be something really different than what, what we envisioned. But here it is. Uh, this is what I the direction I'm going. And so it just, you know, this I think that is how a lot of books, you know, they evolve as they're being written. Um, but for this one, it really was, I, I love writing because I love researching and learning. And so I was writing this book as much for me as for my readers, because I wanted to understand these virtues. I wanted to know what they were and how to practice them in my own life. So, Well, I'm glad that you did. I, I think it really works. And I'm sure many readers uh, definitely are as well. You talk about in the book how the act of reading connects with the virtue. Could you say more there? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, I just I grew up reading. Um, I, you know, some of us have lived long enough that we know what life was like before social media and 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 podcasts and Zoom meetings. Um, and so I, I'm very thankful that um, I was well into adulthood and a lifelong reader before any of these things came along. And so I don't think I realized until later in life how much being a reader shaped my thinking and my perspective, um, and even my my virtues. Um, and of course, now we live in a world where, where everything is competing for reading and for, you know, for our time. And even I struggle to focus on reading rather than scrolling Twitter or, or, or going to the next Zoom meeting and so forth. And so I've actually become even more aware um, and talk about that a little bit in the, in the book uh, of how reading really requires us uh, reading, you know, reading good literature, not just reading the newspaper or reading an instruction manual or something, but sitting down and reading richly um, layered prose or poetry requires us to pay attention. It requires us to slow down. It requires us to reflect. It requires us to imagine the world through other eyes and to make connections or to see the connections that the writers are making. It's an, it's a completely different use of our brain from, I think, just about anything else we do. The thing it's most similar to is listening to another person. Um, and I think that's something a lot of us struggle with, too, to just sit and listen to a person and pay attention uh, and learn from them. And um, reading is that and, and even more because it's because that those pages are just in front of us and, and they, you know, it's our choice whether we keep our eyes on them or not. You, you write in the book how it's not about just reading widely. It's about reading well. Could you you touched on it there, but could you maybe differentiate that a, a little bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, I began teaching at a Christian college over twenty years ago, and again, this was before the internet and those things. And at that time, I was really having to sort of convince my students and sometimes their parents um, that they needed to read beyond, uh, you know, beyond the Christian classics or beyond Harry Potter, as the case may be. Not that there's anything wrong with any either of those, but they just needed to read more widely to read, read diverse literature, read uh, works by 
people whose worldview is very different from ours. And so I, I spent the first years of my um, my teaching career trying to uh, help my my students see the value of reading widely. You know, these couple of decades later, everyone's reading widely. We're reading all kinds of views. Um, we're reading, you know, on the internet, on blogs, um, you know, we were exposed to so many diverse views, but we're not now choosing works that are rich and deep and um, and and develop our critical thinking skills or develop even just our reading skills. Uh, we're inundated with such shallow um, reading and exposed to so many different ideas that I, I'm not as concerned about reading widely as I am about reading well, which means choosing good, rich works and also reading them in a way that uh, is very different from what we do when we're just skimming our eyes across the page and just really reading them skillfully and well. You talk about the act of judging the character of the figures in a text, shaping our own character. Could you say a bit more there? Yeah, again, growing up as a reader, it wasn't something that I thought much about. But um, it was a friend, one of my very close friends a number of years ago, who's also um, an academic, but in a very different field. And she said to me, um, one time, she said, she goes, I think you you are so understanding of people because you read so much. And I and at that time, when she said that, I had just never thought about it. And then I realized and started and then started thinking about and of course, now there's lots of um, cognitive research uh, verifying this. Um, but when we are reading literary fiction in particular, um, and you know, that's another part of the conversation is fiction versus literary fiction. Um, but when we're reading literary fiction, which basically, to give a sort of simple definition, uses the tool or the the art of language to recreate a human experience as opposed to just like give us information when it's recreating using words to recreate human experience then it is requiring our brains to kind of um to do what we would do in a, in a real life situation again like if we're listening to someone tell a problem and we're sitting there trying to assess and judge and maybe advise or predict well if you do this this is going to happen you know we would do that with a friend well don't do this because have you thought about this well when we're reading literary fiction we're actually being required to sort of make the same assessment and my favorite example of this is one of my favorite novels is Pride and Prejudice um because Elizabeth Bet and again, a lot of people only know Pride and Prejudice through the films, and that's very unfortunate. But when we're reading Pride and Prejudice, um, we are supposed to um, love Elizabeth and re and connect to her. She's such a likable character, and even though it's, tr it's told in third person narration, we're seeing everything as it happens through Elizabeth's eyes. And so we're supposed to trust her judgment. We're supposed to trust her perspective because she's witty and funny and smart and not like the other girls. But then when we discover or she discovers that she has really mistaken the character of the two um, male characters, Darcy and Wickham, she, we realize that we've made the same mistake that she has, um, because we've kind of been swept away, taking um, pride in her, um, her intelligence and her perspective and her ability to judge character, because she is good at all of those things, but she's not perfect. And she makes a mistake. And so we make that mistake along with her. And so I say that Pride, pride and Prejudice is basically, you know, it, 
a, a, a novel about epistemology. I mean, we're basically how we know what we know and and how and and how much trust do we put in our own perspective? Um, and it's a lesson in epistemological humility because that's what happens to Elizabeth, but it happens to us along the way. Um, and that's what any reading any literary work of fiction at on some degree or another asks us to go along uh, with that that character or that narrative perspective and learn and grow and make mistakes and um, learn lessons along the way as they do. You said it earlier how you wrote this book also for yourself to learn more about these virtues, and you you picked the timeless virtues of uh, the cardinal virtues, theological virtues, and, and heavenly virtues. I'm curious, as you're reading today, how do you think it maybe shapes your, your lens in the way of, of reading text today after writing the book? Hmm. That that is a good question. I, I mean, I don't. Um, you know, it's not as though I think all the time as I'm reading about what moral lesson I can learn from this book or what what lesson in virtue. It's really more about how I learn about life and uh, and and a perspective. And so um, I think that. Once we learn about these virtues, again, almost it, it's this is why I love language and I love words, because um, they help us to interpret our experience. And so once we know, for example, um, that the virtue of kindness is treating other people like their family, which is different from just being nice, like once we know that definition, then we can enact it in ways that we couldn't when we didn't know what it was. And so when I read a work of literature, just simply knowing all kinds of words and terms and definitions um, helps me to understand uh, what that work of literature through words is helping me to understand about the real world. So virtues is just like sort of one category. I mean, one of the most um, revelatory experiences that I revelatory experiences I had uh, in terms of words and and literature. Uh, that I recall was in graduate school when we were reading some of the um, poetry of of Virgil um, in translation. I studied Latin, but not well enough to read um, in Latin, uh, at least not in a in a literature class. But uh, there's a there's a a pastoral that he writes where he talks about uh, twilight being the hour of melancholy. And I just remember being struck because I had always felt melancholy at twilight, but I didn't have the word for it. And just having that word and for it put a name to the experience, and that that's really a very minor category. Um, but another thing that I do in turn when I teach uh, one another one of my favorite novels, um, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, is Dickens is just such a master with words, and and in this story, which is about this young poor boy named named Pip who who comes to have great expectations and he's filled with desire and envy because he becomes friends with a rich wealthy girl um and she makes fun of him and she uses words to mock him and because she uses those words to mock him um, those words sully the things that he once valued about his life like they become you know they they they, they speak sort of death and sadness into his life when before um, he hadn't 
thought about them that way. And so words have so much power. And um, the virtues themselves are just ways of of putting words on um, things that we all experience and, 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 and maybe should think about more, but perhaps didn't have words for to know what you know, the difference between you know what 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 is true courage because we we get so many um false versions of it or we mistake certain acts of brashness or brazenness for courage and just having the words to know what the difference is i mean that that's the gift of language um and that's why i love words and literature so much that was a rambling answer to the question <laughs> no it's great to to get into a couple of the virtues i thought we could chat about the chapters on on prudence in love. So to start with prudence, okay. what what is prudence? Well, prudence, I mean, prudence is the shortest definition that that I found is really just practical wisdom, you know, it's a category of wisdom. Um, but wisdom often can be very um, sort of abstract and theoretical. And, you know, we might have discussions about like, what what is the wisest course of action in, in this situation? And that's wisdom. But prudence is, is um, more realistic. It's more like, well, sometimes the what we might think of as being wise is um, it, when it's when we're on the ground and in a situation, it calls for quick thinking and for for taking into consideration a number of factors. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I think that. Um, so, for example, we might we might all have certain guardrails and um, guidelines that we use in our lives about about situations. Like we might have this sort of wise. I'm just pulling out an example, but we might have this this wisdom of like, well, I don't give money to um, to panhandlers. I just give my money to you know places that will help them. That might be a rule that we live by. But but we could suddenly some night be in a situation where we're confronted by someone who has an immediate need. And so we might abandon that wisdom for a prudent course of action in that moment, because it just taking all of the factors into consideration in that moment, it seems like the best thing to do is to just help someone in that in, in that moment. Um, and so prudence is like that, just kind of like the mo- moment on the ground, but it comes, we have to have the wisdom to begin with. It's, um, and so I talk about uh, prudence in uh, using one of my favorite um, novels that's so fun to read and teach. It also happens to be like the longest novel in the English language. Um, I, and I didn't realize that so many of my readers would be motivated to read the novels I write about before reading each chapter on it, which is perfectly fine. But I, I really wrote the chapters um, in a way that I hope that people could, you know, un- understand the point without even reading the novels. But I'm thrilled that people want to read this this novel. But beware, it is the novel- longest novel in the English language. It's called The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling. Um, and it's a comical, epic story about a young man who um, who essentially has to um, learn to be prudent in his life in, in many areas. Um, and of course, prudence was a, uh, a primary kind of virtue that was talked about a lot in the 18th century, the neoclassical classical period. And so I just try to unpack um, the meaning of, of, of prudence. And, and it's also a virtue like many ver- of the virtues, but this one in particular, um, it can be very, it can be um, misused, it can, there, there can be distorted versions of it. And so even the word prudence, 
or prudent has come today, I think, to have some negative connotations because we associate it with shrewdness, which is actually, um, you know, one of the vices that's associated with, with prudence because that's the other thing that, that I discovered in my research and talk about in this book, that every virtue is a moderation of equality um, that, you know, is the mean between its excess and its deficiency. Um, and that's the thing I think that we often mistake is we think that a, because we've been exposed only to or mostly to an excess or deficiency of equality, we um, don't understand that the moderation is the moderation of it that's virtuous. Mm. You touched on it there, but how does satire deepen our <laughs> understanding of, of prudence? Yeah, the, I I could talk about satire a lot. So, um, so satire by its very nature, uh, and by the way, I'll just give kind of a working definition of satire because a lot of people don't know what satire is, or we have false versions of satire. Satire is basically the ridicule of vice or folly for the purpose of correction. Um, so, again, this is the traditional classical definition. So, in that definition, satire actually has to have a moral purpose. It's not just to mock or belittle for its own sake, uh, but it's to correct something. And so satire, because it deals with both um, a, a vice or a folly, and also it's correct, the correction of that, it requires an, an a kind of double vision. It requires being able to see two things at once, which is a really hard and sophisticated thing to do as human beings. Like, right, it actually takes practice and skill to be able to see two things at one at once to see what's wrong, because that requires us to also see how it should be made right. I mean, if, if we could do that so easily, we would have like no problems in the world, right? <laughs> so um, satire uses, you know, it's a form of irony or a for form of doubling. And so that ties well with prudence because prudence or really any of the virtues, because every virtue that exists has its form in a vice and in, in the excess or deficiency. And so being able to see the difference between the virtuous amount of that quality or the vicious amount requires a kind of perspective that's broad and wide, um, a kind of circumspection. And so um, irony in particular, and, and, and uh, satire is a use of irony, um, demands that we um, weigh, oh, is this being serious and literal and earnest? Or is there um, satire here? Um, and so satire done well and done, you know, doing what it's supposed to do um, is a very sophisticated um, use of language and requires a sophisticated kind of um, ability on our part to to read between the lines and know when something is uh, not in earnest. Uh, and so Tom Jones is just uh, that that's it's, it's a very satirical work and um, lots of bouncing around perspectives with no uh, real you know, you, you as a reader have to figure out what is the serious point of this and what is being um, satirical or ironic. Another important point I, I think you raise in this chapter is around perfectionism. You write how it's the mm. foil of, of prudence, which is maybe something we don't always think about. Yes, because pr if prudence is like practical wisdom on the ground, then 
being practical by its very nature is, you know, it goes against perfectionism, right? It's, it's trying to sort of get something done, get it done well. Um, and it's, it's not ideal. It's not, it's, which is what perfectionism is. Perfectionism can put something off. I, I think I might reference this in the book, um, the old saying that, um, uh, the best is the enemy of the good that maybe that's in a later chapter, but just, you know, striving for the best as opposed to doing something, you know, good, well, um, is what prevents us from accomplishing anything, really. Uh, and so being prudent is just sort of knowing how to weigh and measure all of the factors in order to get something done well, um, the key being to get it done, as opposed to just putting it off, you know, as a perfectionist might for a, until it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, perfectionism is a surprising theme for me that has come up in a number of episodes on In Search of Wisdom that I didn't necessarily connect mm. as such an important piece. So yeah, I, I love that. Um, to transition to, to another chapter, I, I wanted to chat about love. And you, you touched on it earlier of the English language. You, you write in this chapter how we're a bit limited in, in terms of communicating about love in the English language. Yeah, it is. It's I. I love language and I love English. Um, so I'll put that out there. But the the, the whole um the limitations of the words that we have in English for love really points out the limitations, not just of English language but of of all language, um, because we use the same word love about everything. I, I can say I love mint chip ice cream. I can say I love my dog. I can say I love my father. I can say I love my husband. I can say I love summer. And all of those words hopefully mean different things. Um, and so, I mean, the, any of us who've studied this a little bit or um, know a little bit about other languages know, I mean, especially in, in and I draw on these, um, in Greek, there are different kinds of, of love. And C.S. Lewis is famous for writing about these, but there are even more, he calls it in his book, The Four Loves, but there are even more words um, there. And so, the, um, the, you know, there, there's brotherly love, there is um, sexual romantic love, and there is um, a transcendent love, agape love. And so that is the love that I, I write about in the chapter on love and on reading well, um, the kind of uh, love that we would want to have from our fellow human beings um, that it, that reflects, you know, it reflects the love of God, our creator. Um, that's what agape love is. And, um, and that's what I write about using the um, Tolstoy's short story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, um, which is just a powerful, powerful reflection on um, the love that Ivan lacks his whole life until, until his death. Um, this is one of my favorite stories. It's every time I read it, it's like, I just get more and more out of it. If you could, are there any, maybe one or two lessons that come to mind from uh, Tolstoy's work that you could share? Well, of course, with, uh, with uh, my other um, favorite work of his is Anna Karenina, uh, which is uh, sort of the, um, the, uh, Russian version of Madame Bovary. Uh, those two works are often compared. Um, and Anna Karenina is about, uh, it's also actually really, I haven't ever 
been ambitious enough to write about it. Russian literature is hard for me. I mean, even in translation, it's hard. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, that's, this is a novel about marital love or sexual romantic love with, with adultery at the center of it. But it also, and maybe this is a theme in Tolstoy. Again, my, my expertise is British literature. So I just do this other literature on the side. Um, but again, there, there's an element, there's a way in which, um, these loves can't be separated, like to even to love um, our spouse um, in a romantic way that is good requires also agape love, right? It requires um, loving them in uh, a way that is that is more than just based on on physical or sexual appetites, but is transcendent. And so maybe that is a, a theme of Tolstoy's that runs through his works. Um, those are those are my two favorites, the ones I'm most familiar with. But there's just uh, there in in the death of Ivan Ilyich. That's a place that, that I would recommend people to start if they haven't started. Uh, it's a it's it's a novella or a long short story. You know, it's not not a long. It's not really long enough to be a novel, but it's longer than a short story. So you get a good. It's got it's well developed, but it's also just focused enough on this on this theme. Um, and the writing is just so, so amazing. Of course, there are different translations, but I love the way that he um, uses words that have different layers of meaning. Uh, meaning, I, I talk about this, I think, in the chapter about how um, Yvonne lives a life that's very um, decorous, like he wants to conform to the cl the class standards um, that sh would show him to be um successful and respectable. And it's actually that striving for that kind of superficial standard um, that is his fall. Um, and, the, and the story is kind of a parable or an allegory because he's, you know, he falls and receives a fatal injury. But it's also a fall, like in the metaphorical sense, like a fall from grace or a fall. Um, but it's a fortunate fall, because even though it I mean, the story, it's not a spoiler because the story opens with him dead, um, but it's through his death that he actually finds this agape love and mm. life, actually. So it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And it just shows so well what literature can um, do through because it uses language and uses language in a way that shows us what language can do in a story and for us. I've got a curiosity question for you, Karen, if I could. <laughs> Um, when it comes to prudence or wisdom, it seems like we tend to agree that we don't necessarily have it. It takes a, a, a bit of time to cultivate, um, maybe not something that comes to us naturally. But sometimes when we think about love, it's maybe the, the opposite. We, we come to the the a realization that we we know how to love. So I'm curious, I guess the question is, should we think about love as a, as a skill or, you know, this virtue to be cultivated over a lifetime? Any thoughts there? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, love, the way that I um, talk about love in, in, um, on reading well is that I include it in, 
Yeah, there are three parts of the book. And, and there's so many virtues. I, that was another part of my research. There are so many lists of virtues. There are like the Roman virtues, the civic virtue, all kinds of different virtues. And and so I wanted to have some sort of a coherent organization. Uh, so I had to select the virtues that I wanted to talk about. So as you mentioned before, I did uh, the first part is the cardinal virtues. And the second part is the theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love taken from the, the Christian Bible. Um, and, um, and so love is something I would argue because all, all virtues, according to, um, virtue ethics are things that we can cultivate in practice. It's not, they aren't things that we just have or don't have. We actually can intentionally pursue the cultivation of, of those in our lives. And what Aristotle says about them is that, that, you know, a person has attained virtue when we, when one no longer has to try. So it just comes naturally or like by second nature. And what a goal that is to have to just like have practiced it so much that it's second nature, like the way someone, you know, who's a really good basketball player can dribble like it's natural, but we know that it wasn't natural, right? It took a lot of practice. Well, that's what virtue should be like. And, and we do because we're so influenced by romanticism in uh, Western culture, we do tend to think of love as this thing that comes down from the sky or the angel or the muse um, or Cupid or whatever. And we either have it or we don't, but that is, that is not what virtue ethicists would teach us. Love is something that we practice. And it's also something um, with it, there's an intellectual aspect to it. And I don't mean that in the sense like you have to be smart to love well, not at all. What I mean is we have to have an understanding of what love is. And so an example that I like to use um, is, and this goes along with um, teleology and understanding a purpose is, is we really can't, and this is very Augustinian, Augustine would talk about this in, on, on Christian teaching or on Christian doctrine. Um, like we love something well when we love it for what it is. And so much of the way we love is loving for what we want something to be. Um, I like to think of, you know, for me, a good example of this is animals because I love animals. Um, I love my dogs and like, I want to love my dogs in all their dogness, you know, I don't want to love them because they're substitute children or something like that, or they're filling in something. I just want to love them because they're dogs and dogs are amazing. Um, and that's how we should approach, you know, we want to love people for who they are and what they are, you know, not because they're perfect. Like we, we love our parents because they are our parents. And that doesn't mean they have to be perfect. And that doesn't mean that we have to accept any abuse or dysfunction from them. But there's just a certain kind of love that comes with them being what they are and who they are. And so there's an understanding that comes with with loving things for what they are and also loving them well, um, based on their purpose. Um, and so that's how love, I think, becomes a virtue. And we do have to we do have to practice it. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a cliche, but, you know, about love being a choice and a choice we make every day. And but it really that that's what it's talking about is 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 choosing love and choosing loving well every day. Mm. So that's a makes it a virtue. Well, that is a great spot to transition to a, a couple wrap up questions that we 
we ask most guests. Um, and the first one is around wisdom, how you think about or define wisdom in, in daily life for you. Yeah, so I I don't, you know, I, 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 I wish I could pull off the top of my head a good definition of wisdom from one of the moral philosophers, but I don't have one. So I'll just make up my own, I guess. I think wisdom is wisdom is understanding the world as it is and acting accordingly. And, you know, I think we do all know people who are like naturally wise. Um, There's just some people who are wise and they have wisdom. And, but again, I think wisdom can be learned. Um, but I also think it's something that's so, uh, it's probably involves so many things that are precognitive that we don't even think about. Like I think that the, that that to understand the world as it is, which was my first half of my definition, um, it requires us to really pay attention, like to pay mm. pay attention to other people, to pay attention to nature, to pay attention to just how things interact and work. And that's not something you. Know, I mean, we can we can strive to do that. We can certainly. Um, attempt to do that. But some people just do that more naturally. They just absorb. It's almost like absorbing um, the way the world works and then acting accordingly. So so wisdom, I do think it's one of those things that um, can be a, a natural characteristic of someone. But I think we can all strive for it too. We can all just ask ourselves, like, what makes the world work this way? And how can I sort of be in sync with the way it works or or um, try to improve it when it's when it's not working accordingly. I love that. And we tend to think about maybe wisdom and love as as two sides of the same coin. So so the other side and the second question is, we we see in scripture throughout this idea of of not to harden our hearts. Mm-hmm. And and the question is, is there anything that comes to mind around? softening our hearts and, and growing in, in compassion and, and love. Yes. I mean, it is so easy to harden our hearts, especially today. I think, you know, we, we just go out there and there's so many, there's so much exposure of corruption and abuse. Um, it can be very easy to harden our hearts. But for me, I think, um, you know, it has like, like sometimes I, 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 there things I'm, I'm dealing with and looking at and I, and I want to harden my heart. I want to just sort of walk away and I can't. Um, and it's because I, I, you know, I love someone or I love something. And, um, and I, I do think that that's tied to wisdom in the sense that um, it's so, I think our hearts become hardened when we, we become centered on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so when something obstructs us or is a challenge for us, um, or gets in our way, we harden our heart. But when we are focused on someone else so that we can actually see things from their perspective, to go back to what literature does for us to see, um, well, gee, this person that I completely disagree with and don't understand and really drives me crazy, you know, they're coming from this place or they've had this experience and this or this is what they're trying to do. If we can see that perspective, um, we can still disagree with them. We can still think they're wrong. We can still, you know, do what you know, be different. But if we can just have that perspective, that human perspective about them and 
recognize the humanity in them, um, then, then that's wisdom, but that's also us not hardening our heart. So I, I love the connection that you're asking me to draw between those two things. I mean, wisdom and love, I don't think really can be separated. Well, thank you so much for that, Karen. This has been great. How can people learn more about you? Well, I have a, I do have a website. It's very basic, but you can kind of get introduced to some of uh, my work there, karenswallowprior.com. And I do, um, unfortunately, spend a lot of time on Twitter. So you can also mm-hmm. find me there at KS Pryor. Um, if you just want to see, I'm also on Instagram, which I use really to post, you know, beautiful things like my daily runs and books and dogs. And, um, you know, that's sort of a respite away from all of the all of the words um, that fill so many of our days. <laughs> well, Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.